Let's pray together. God, we are so grateful for the wonderful cross on which you died. Lord, thank you for Jason and Layla and the entire Gunner family, Lord, and the way that they love you and serve you, for the gifts that you have given Layla and the way that she turns them around and just gives them right back to you, Lord. Now, Father, we come to the point in our service where we look to your word. We look for guidance. We look for strength. We turn to you and to your word for comfort and for hope. Lord, while I ask that you give us all of those things, I pray, Lord, that you would convict us. Lord, that you would challenge us. Pierce us to our very hearts, Lord. That we might conform our lives to You, Lord Jesus. That we might be renewed in our minds by the transforming of our hearts into a new heart that beats for You. We love You, Father. We thank You for the opportunity to worship You even in this format. We ask that You would speak in spite of a foolish and frail servant, Lord. That You would move and that Your Spirit would go forward. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. This morning we will not necessarily be in a traditional Easter passage, but we are continuing on in our sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew. So if you'll take in your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 21. So last week we did not necessarily look at the passage about the triumphal entry, but that does take place in the beginning part of Matthew 21. But we're actually going to pick up in a parable that Jesus tells and teaches to the scribes, to the Pharisees, to the chief priests and elders, beginning in verse 33. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there to Matthew 21, beginning in verse 33. You can follow along on your phone or iPad or follow the words on the screen. However you are accessing the word of the Lord, I would encourage you to stand if you are physically able out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As we look together now at Matthew chapter 21, I'll begin reading in verse 33. We'll read to the end of the chapter and then I will say this is the word of the Lord and I encourage you to say thanks be to God wherever you may be. Beginning in verse 33, the word of the Lord says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenant to get his fruits. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have this inheritance for ourselves. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, 
He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So over this weekend, on Good Friday, Jesus was still in various trials and tribulations and punishments beginning in the morning as early as 6 a.m., He makes his way to the cross by 9 a.m. He hangs there until noon. At noon on Good Friday, even though it should be the brightest moment of the day, darkness encompasses all of the land for three hours. And then at 3 p.m., the Lord says it is finished. And Jesus surrenders his spirit to the Father. He says it is done. I commend to you my spirit. And he dies. And then we're, we're told in Scripture that even at that moment in the book of Matthew, we have descriptions of how the earth broke open in earthquakes, of how the ground itself shook at the death of Jesus, and how even those who had been dead that were saints gone before were raised from the dead and wandered through Jerusalem from some unknown period of time, so much so that the guards and the centurions who were there watching over Jesus as he was crucified said, surely this man was the son of God. And so then Jesus hangs there on the cross, and at some point in time, it gets to be closer to the end of the day, and they're going to break the legs of all those hanging on the cross. But when they get to Jesus, they recognize he's already dead. And so instead of breaking his legs, they take a spear and they pierce his side, and blood and water flow out, proving to them that he is most certainly dead. And then Joseph of Arimathea, at some point in the afternoon, goes to Pilate and asks for Jesus' body. And he goes and they take Jesus' body down off of the cross and, and clean it quickly but not thoroughly. And they take it and put it in a tomb that Joseph had purchased for himself. All of these events over the Easter weekend fulfill various prophecies throughout the Old Testament. All of them are the events that even fulfill the prophecies and parables that Jesus told. The things that he's saying to the scribes and the Pharisees in this very passage are the things that happened to him at the end of the week, at this weekend, 2,000 years ago. And so Saturday is a miserable day. Again, we, we talked about it at the sunrise service, but for disciples who were used to DJ Khaled's song, all they did was win, all right? They lost, and they lost Bad. 
They had no idea what to do or where to go or where to turn. And in those moments of great grief and suffering, all the words that Jesus had spoken were wiped from their mind. They couldn't remember that Jesus had said over and over again that he would die and that on the third day he would be raised. Even the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those on the Sanhedrin, they remembered that Jesus said he would rise. So they had guards placed outside the tomb to guard the tomb. You see, it was much more poignant to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. When Jesus is telling a parable and the parable is directed at you, it stings a lot more and it makes a bigger mark in your mind. It makes a more indelible imprint on your memory. But the disciples sitting back probably heard this parable and the many others, the many times that Jesus got the upper hand on the Pharisees and the Sadducees and just laughed and thought, ha ha, Jesus got him again. I tell you what, this Jesus, they can't stump him for nothing. But what he actually said didn't resonate with them. It's like if somebody tells a joke against you, that joke is seared into your mind. But everybody else around you may laugh and enjoy the joke, but not remember what the joke was. You know, you joke about somebody being overweight to somebody who is overweight, and that overweight person is going to remember that for a very long time. I am not necessarily speaking from personal experience, but maybe just a little bit. So people will understand, oh, they said something funny, and and Nathan was kind of the butt of the joke, but they don't remember the words that were exactly spoken. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those who were the proverbial butt of the joke, they remember. And so they have guards placed outside the tomb. And the guards are waiting there. And listen, I I know that we've heard many preachers sensationalize. And there's no way to sensationalize enough that at some point early on Sunday morning, the ground shook again and the tomb burst open. There was no longer any stone that could contain the tomb. The guards were scared out of their mind. The guards had no idea what was going on. And Jesus was again alive. And He had risen. And from that point forward, what He says in this passage begins to become reality. Because He went from being the stone that had been rejected, the stone that they had turned away for being not smooth enough, not firm enough, not strong enough, He wasn't coming as a conquering king, so he couldn't be the stone that we were looking for. That rejected stone became the cornerstone. And that stone began to fall and be a stumbling block to all those who would not recognize that Jesus was and is and forever will be the one and only Messiah. The anointed one, the Christ that he is the way and the truth and the life and that nobody comes to the Father except through him. The most incredible part is that this happens. This passage we're reading probably happened sometime on Sunday or Monday or maybe Tuesday of last week. And Jesus warns them, your hearts are about to become hard and you're about to be crushed by the cornerstone because the stone that you have rejected will not stay covering the tomb. The stone that you have rejected will not remain dead. So Jesus tells them this very important parable. And even within the parable, he talks about how the vineyard's owner 
sends His only Son, and the Son is taken outside the vineyard, just as Jesus was taken outside the city of Jerusalem so that He could be crucified on a place known as the place of the skull, Golgotha, so that everybody walking into and out of Jerusalem would look up there and go, Woo! Don't mess with them Romans. They will jack you up, man. They will mess you up. Look at that. I ain't, whatever their law is, we're going to follow it because that's the result of not following their law. In the same way, Jesus was crucified outside the vineyard. But everything about this parable has significance, and it all points directly to our Easter weekend. This parable of wicked tenants continues a vineyard metaphor. That's the beauty of it. Jesus starts this off talking about a vineyard because he knew the scribes and the Pharisees would have been familiar with Isaiah chapter 5, with Nehemiah chapter 9. If you go to your Bibles and mark those places, read them after this sermon. Isaiah chapter 5 and Nehemiah chapter 9. Those are places where their minds would have been drawn, where there are clear analogies from the prophets that Israel is the vineyard. But now Jesus takes a very familiar metaphor, a very familiar analogy that they would have remembered from Isaiah chapter 5. They would have remembered from Nehemiah chapter 9. And he turns it against Israel. Them. This is a parable of judgment, and it is addressed primarily to these religious leaders in Israel. The story just draws on everyday life. Disputes between absentee landlords and tenants was a common thing. This was an everyday occurrence. And today, in our day and time, it is still an everyday occurrence. How many people have thought to sell their house and move into another house and been tempted and said, hmm, you know, maybe we ought to keep this house and rent it out to people. And then they had a swarm of friends, a swarm of people that loved them dearly and came to them and said, Oh, no, 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 no. Have you ever heard about what it's like to rent to people? Do you know what these renters will do to your house? Do you know what will happen? And sometimes the people listen and they don't rent. And sometimes people do and they they have bad experiences. They have good experiences. Right now in the midst of the coronavirus crisis, they're saying that the rent is not due in many places around our country. And those landowners still have to do something. Eventually the rent's going to come due. And I'm sure that even right now, as we're talking and in the midst of this crisis, there are serious disputes between landlords and tenants. That's the beauty of what Jesus does. He never takes things super complicated and uses those. He just takes everyday occurrences, everyday regular events, and turns them and uses them within his parables to have deep and rich spiritual meaning. So this is a dispute between landlords and tenants. And so this man builds this beautiful vineyard. He builds a fence around it. He he puts a wine press in it. It's got everything you need. All you got to do is show up and farm. And then when harvest time comes, you give a portion of the fruits to the landowner and then you sell the rest for your own profits. It's a it's a great situation. But the people who have purchased or or the people who have rented from this landowner are evil, wretched, miserable people. Don't miss that they condemn themselves in their own words when they say these wretched, miserable people. That's the kind of people the landlord doesn't know it at first. Because it's so easy for us to be deceived. Somebody says, oh, no, no, I'm good. I got, I got a good credit score. I'm going to pay you. Everything's going to be great. But we never know what's going to happen in life. And you, you never really know somebody till you spend a lot of time with them. And even if you thought you knew somebody, moving into a relationship of landlord and tenant will take your relationship to a new level. 
You might think you know somebody, but man, once once they're a renter in a property that you own, then you'll really know that person and what, what they're like. So this landlord rolls the dice, takes a chance on these tenants. The fruit has come into harvest. It's time for them to deliver. And he sends some of his servants. And they specifically do various things to these servants. They kill them by some means that we're not sure. They beat some up and send them back so that the message will be sent back to the landowner. And then others were told the specific method by which they were killed. They were stoned. The reason Jesus says this is because he wants to draw a perfect illusion, a symbolism, a type between these servants who go for the landowner and the prophets of the Old Testament. You see, the landowner is God. And God sends his servants to collect his fruits in the prophets. He sends Jeremiah. He sends Isaiah. He sends Samuel. He sends these prophets to speak to his people and give them wisdom and show them the way that they might bear fruit for the Lord. But they continuously reject the prophets. They continuously turn to false gods. And so the Lord sends more prophets. And we get into Obadiah and Micah and Daniel. We get into these prophets like Jonah and Joel and Amos. You have all of these people who God sends. And the second round, they do the same thing. They kill some. They stone some. And some of them they just beat up and send back so that they get the message. And the landowner says, I'll send my heir. And don't don't miss this. This would have been a huge move legally. The people should have had such respect for the heir of the landowner. Their logic is completely backwards. They see the heir coming, and when he gets there, they say, let's kill him so we can have his inheritance. They think that the way to get the inheritance from the landowner is to kill the heir to the property. Folks, that's the most backwards logic you could have had in the ancient Near Eastern culture. The man is still the landowner. You've done nothing by killing his son. You've helped yourself in no way. That analogy would have rung so heavily with all the audience that Jesus is speaking to at this particular time. Jesus is hitting them right where it hurts. And they are getting that that is foolishness. To kill the heir and think you would get the inheritance? But they won't understand the significance until Easter Sunday. They won't understand the significance until Christ rises on that Sunday morning that we remember today all those years ago. Because they killed the son in the same way. They took him outside the city and crucified him. They took him outside the vineyard and they killed him. And then Jesus masterfully just it's just amazing he asks the pharisees the scribes the chief priests the elders well what do you think that the uh the landowner is going to do now what do you guys say and like we mentioned just a moment ago they respond condemning themselves well the landowner is going to show up and he's going to kill those miserable wretches I, i don't know how jesus didn't laugh right there I have no idea how the Savior and God made flesh who understood everything he was saying did not cackle in their face laughing. 
because they've condemned themselves in what they say. They were miserable. They were wretched in every way. And they were the ones who killed the heir. And so when they answer condemning themselves, Jesus then responds by quoting Psalm 118. He says that the the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Folks, I I want us to take just a moment and we're going to look at Psalm 118 because Jesus never says anything by accident. There is so much else in Psalm 118 that shows us the glory and the beauty of Easter Sunday. He is trying to point out to them what is about to happen to him over Easter weekend. And they miss it completely, but they probably had this entire passage memorized. To be one of the Pharisees, you had to have huge chunks of the Scriptures memorized. They knew it. They had it cataloged in their own mind. And so when Jesus says the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone, it brings all of Psalm 118 rushing to the forefront of their mind. And I want you to hear what they were hearing in their minds when Jesus made this quotation. Beginning in verse 1, Psalm 118, it'll be on the screens, I think. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures Forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous the right hand of the lord does valiantly the right hand of the lord exalts the right hand of the lord does valiantly i shall not die but i shall live and recount the deeds of the lord the lord has disciplined me severely but he has not given me over to death Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. 
Oh Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless You from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and He has made His light to shine upon us. Folks, the power of this psalm to tie into everything Jesus experiences on Holy Week, everything He experiences in the Easter weekend, and this is the very passage that He points to when He's rebuking the Pharisees and the scribes. The people hear this. The people just moments before, maybe hours before, were saying, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And now Jesus quotes the very passage that some of that comes from. This is a powerful psalm that gives fresh meaning to all that Jesus is saying in this parable. Look with me once again and kind of focus in on these verses. Verse 6, the Lord is on my side. What shall I fear? What can man do to me? This is the attitude with which Jesus goes into his crucifixion. When he prays over and over again, Lord, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. Over and over again, Jesus is unafraid and knows that there is nothing more that man can do to him because the Lord is his helper. The Lord is on his side and there will be a morning this very morning where he will arise from the grave and look on those who hate him. And it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. All throughout the trials, Jesus was tempted to give himself up, to speak and say something and trust that these Pharisees and Sadducees would relent. But instead, he trusted that the Lord would deliver him over to death, but that the Lord would resurrect him again. It's better to take refuge in the Lord. And listen, all my beekeepers out there. All right, Tommy Wright and Ted Watson and Colton Sims and Kenny Grissett and all the rest of y'all beekeepers and David, I know you got some bees. They surrounded me like bees. There you go. There's some support for beekeeping in the book of Psalms for all my beekeeping buddies. If I missed one of you, I'm sorry. I love you. But there's your beekeeping verse, Psalm 118, verse 12. All right. The Lord is my strength and my song. He, the Lord, has become my salvation. Death had swallowed Christ up. But the Father resurrected Him and He has become our salvation. Mm. And then the Lord doesn't give Him over to death for forever. The Lord doesn't leave Him in the grips of death. The Father does not leave Christ dead. Everything in this psalm, in verse 20, Jesus says He is the gate. He is the way, the good shepherd. He is the sheep's gate. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. If you don't know the song that goes along with that one, look it up. You're just missing out. You know, this is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. That the Lord has made. This is where it comes from. Jesus is talking about Sunday morning. He's talking about Easter. And he's quoting this passage And he just gives a snippet of it so that we'll think of the whole thing and how it ties to our Easter experience. At this time, even at Jesus' time, Psalm 118 was already known and classified as a messianic psalm. The opponents of Jesus 
Understand what he means, that the stone refers to the Messiah, that the builders refers to the leaders of Israel. Rejected echoes the theme of persecution of the prophets of God. The new Israel, the faithful Israel, will accept the Son as the rightful messenger, as the heir, as the cornerstone of the messianic kingdom. Folks, this is powerful stuff that Jesus is saying. He is the cornerstone, the foundation, the perfectly cut stone upon which the rest of the building will be measured. And it's not the only time that this gets referenced, but Peter remembers this. The Holy Spirit draws it to his mind. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 2 through 10. Because this is the significance of Jesus being the cornerstone for us. And it's all over Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and Precious, And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. He quotes that from Isaiah 28. In verse 7, he continues, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. As they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. Folks, what First Peter is talking about is what Jesus says in Matthew 21. Specifically in verse 43, the kingdom of God will be taken away from the leaders of Israel and will be given to a new Israel, a faithful Israel. Those who are the right heirs of the kingdom. Those who are the children of Abraham, not by blood, but by the same faith. That Abraham had. Because there were no fruits that were produced. The vineyard was taken from the tenants. And given to those who would produce the fruits. That's especially poignant on Easter Sunday. Because folks, if we think that showing up for one or two church services a year. Is producing the fruits of righteousness. We are sorely mistaken. 
Maybe you're tuning in on YouTube or Facebook and this is the only time you get church all year long. I am grateful for that. But I want us to understand that if all that believing in Jesus has done, all that it has changed in our life is that we tune in on Christmas and on Easter, then we have missed the boat. We're not being built up into the spiritual house. We're not exhibiting the fruit that it shows that our lives and our hearts have been transformed and are being transformed and conformed to Jesus. Christ didn't rise from the dead so that we could come to church once or twice a year and pretend like it's not important any other time in our life. Christ didn't rise from the dead just so that when coronavirus breaks out, we turn to the Lord and go, Oh God, please help me. But then as soon as this passes, we go right back out to living however we want to live. Ignoring the fact that Jesus is real and alive. And that we celebrate He's risen today. And that that changes our lives. That changes our wants. That changes the fruit that our lives produce Then we become built up on the cornerstone, a holy temple, our bodies becoming that temple where the Holy Spirit dwells and produces the fruits of righteousness in us. And if that's not the relationship that you have with the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, then I'm afraid you might not know the cornerstone. You may have rejected it and thought it was some senseless formless, ugly rock that made no account or had no significance when it is the very cornerstone of all creation. Folks, don't miss that Jesus is the cornerstone and He calls us to orient everything about our lives around Him. We love our neighbors because of Him. We love others because of Him. We give sacrificially because of Him. We help those in need because of Him. We worship together as an assembly because of Him. Because He is alive. And He is not a rejected, ugly stone. He is the cornerstone. And the warnings at the end of this passage are serious and severe. And if we don't recognize that, oh folks, we're destined for separation From God Almighty. Look at verse 43 and 44 again. Therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. The Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders. And given to a people producing its fruits. That people that it's talking about. Is anyone who places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Not just a whimsical. I'm going to say this prayer. I'm going to say the right words. I'm going to show up every now and again. Not something that's that's fanciful, but we're talking about a life-changing faith. That's the people producing fruit. But verse 44, And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when this stone falls on anyone, it will crush him. I'm not trying to scare anybody or sound like a fire and brimstone, hellfire and damnation kind of preacher, but I I hope if you're watching and and church and, and following Christ is not your normal routine, I hope if you haven't denied yourself and taken up your cross and followed Jesus, that you hear me say there's only two options. You either be built upon the cornerstone, the one who is risen, or the stone will crush you. 
Those are the only options. That's the only choice out there. So this Easter Sunday, I, I just have to ask, can you say that you're part of this people that the kingdom has been given to, where the fruit is expected? If you are a part of this people that Jesus refers to, are you producing the fruit that is expected of us? Are we producing the fruit of righteousness that Christ expects out of us? Or are we just professional fakers? Professional posers? Really good at going through the motions and making everybody think that we're being built on the cornerstone when really our leg is trapped under it because it's crushing us. And we've been able to hide it really well. Are we producing fruit that allows us to say, Yes, sir, I'm a part of those people. Those people that He died for. Those people that believe in Him. Those people that their hearts are changed. Those people that their lives are transformed. That's me. Or are we the ones that the stone is falling on? Are we the ones like the Pharisees and the scribes who rejected the stone? Because it just sounds crazy that somebody could raise from the dead. Foolish Christians. These people just hallucinated things. It was women that testified. It was, it was all these excuses. It, there's no way. Jesus, Jesus didn't even really die. He, just, he looked like He died maybe. And then He was like in the tomb and there was some place for Him to breathe. And then the disciples moved the stone and He just hid Himself for the rest of His life. It's all a fake. It's all a fraud. That's not a real Savior. If you think those things today, the stone is crushing you and you don't even know it. Because he did die. They pierced his side. Once you've asphyxiated to death like Jesus did because he suffocated on the cross to death. Water and blood built up in his lungs and heart. And that spear pierced through. And his dead body spouted forth the blood and the water because he was dead. He was gone. And they laid him in a tomb and his disciples despaired for life. Because they thought they were next. But then Sunday morning, our Jesus really did get up off of that bed and fold His clothes neatly and lay them down. And He showed up to His disciples just like Jake read to us. He showed up to them numerous times over 40 days. Once to over 500 people. And that you cannot hallucinate. 500 people can't have the same hallucination at the same time. And then these, these ragtag group of outsiders who were dumb fishermen, just like you and me, turned into the most Bible-preaching, gospel-proclaiming machine you'd ever seen in your life. And when threatened with death, they said, kill me. Because it's real. Folks, Jesus is the cornerstone. And the choice this Easter and every day is to believe in Him or be crushed by Him. And so I pray that maybe today you can change camps and go from being crushed by the stone to be being built upon it. And for those of us who are being built upon it, there are promises of life eternal. And just like the songs we sang, we know that He lives and we can live. 
But if the stone is crushing you right now, if you have rejected Jesus, you can know that there is death for miserable wretches who reject our Savior. And it is agonizing and terrible. Don't be in that camp. I'm going to pray for us. And then Jason and the band are going to come up and lead us through several songs. And I just want to encourage you that if you're a faithful follower of Christ, spend the next however long that we're worshiping together praising God that He is the cornerstone. That He is building us up upon this perfect stone. But if you have rejected Jesus, I beg for you to change your mind. Trust in Jesus so that you can sing these songs in spirit and in truth. So you can mean them and you can cry out to the Lord. And you can praise Him and say, thank you for saving me, dear Father. Because salvation is available to all who would trust. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life that can be your story today. But it's not just a simple prayer. It means taking up your cross. It means denying ourselves and following Jesus. If you're willing to take that journey, there is life eternal and rewards unending waiting for those of us who would believe in the sacrifice of our Savior. Waiting for those of us who follow Him and bear the fruits of righteousness. Waiting for those of us who know that wasn't just some common stone. It wasn't just some lumpy, bumpy, disregarded stone that can't be used for anything. It was the perfect stone upon which the very foundations of all the universe were laid. Will you trust in Him today? Will you be built upon this stone? Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your love, for Your mercy. We thank You that even though we rejected You, God, even though we we killed You, even though we nailed You to a cross, we took You outside the vineyard, thinking to claim all the inheritance for ourselves, not realizing that the inheritance is only through You. God, please forgive us and help us and save us. And maybe if you're listening in online somewhere and, and you don't know Jesus, if you truly want to follow Him, you can pray a prayer like this. You can say to God right now, Father, I'm sorry. I have failed You. But I love You. And I need to be saved. Forgive me, Jesus. And save my soul. I promise if you pray that prayer and you mean it from the depths of your heart, and you change your life based on inviting Christ in to be your Savior, that you will be saved. If you repent and turn from your sins and trust in the only Savior, He will save you. 
Lord, thank You that salvation is available to all who would believe. And it's available to all who would believe because of what You did on Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago. Help us, Lord. We are so weak. Father, as we turn to another time of singing Your name, lifting high Your praises, would You, Lord, be blessed and would Your Spirit move among us that we might declare that there is freedom for those who are found in Your name. Lord, help us to rejoice because the tomb was and still is empty. Let us worship You now in spirit and truth. We pray to the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit.